Talk radio show brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks available on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me here on the Talent Talk Radio Show. Have two great guests lined up today, and uh, just in case uh, you're new to the show, let me give you a little recap on how it works. Uh, the show really centers around the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and my favorite employee engagement. So these are all topics that we hear CEOs and entrepreneurs and HR pros, really just business leaders in general, talking about and and asking about. So uh, I hope that you can tune in here each week, uh, whether it's live on the uh, TuneIn Network or listen to the podcast uh, through iTunes or iHeartRadio, and that you can hear something that you can take away that will really help you in your own career or at your house, or whatever it is, within some relationship, and just in some positive way, we hope to give you a tip or a trick here uh, from all the great wisdom that our guests are going to gonna unveil today. So, uh, you know, I've personally met a lot of these inspiring leaders at different events and groups that I've attended or, or uh, conferences where I've, I've been a speaker. And so as I have this privilege to talk to them, uh, you know, we figure we make this show really about uh, conversation and bringing uh, these great people in, allowing you to hear our dialogue and, you know, again, hopefully give you something that you can use down the road. So Talent Talk Live is uh, here every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, uh, as I mentioned, and you can also access it via that podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio. And we've amassed a really large following. I think it's over 280,000 of you uh downloaded at least one podcast last week so thank you so much for your support and coming back and and listening if you have any questions for my guests uh, you can submit them via twitter Uh, just go on twitter and pop in your question hopefully it's not too long i think you only get 180 characters but don't forget to add that hashtag talent talk or we won't know how to find you Uh, that or you can send it to at people g2 My producer, Mike, is diligently staring at his Twitter feed right now and waiting for you to send him a good question that he can send over to me. All right, let's go ahead and get to my guests. Uh, The first, uh, we'll have two guests today. So my first one will be uh, Mark Babbitt. He's the president of uh, Switch and Shift. Say that eight times quickly and not mess that one up. Uh, And Jeff uh, Dubisky is the uh, global talent executive with uh, Wilson HCG. Jeff will be joining me in the second half of the show, but let's go ahead and get to my first guest. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. So tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your current role as uh, president of uh, Shift and Shift. Well, Switch and Shift, excuse me. Right. It's hard to say <laughs> what even once right, let alone <laughs> three times. I still haven't, I still haven't figured it out. Um, Switch and Shift is a, is a consultancy that helps organizations make this this strange transition that we're making from industrial age best practices into the social age. So we, we help them develop skills like active listening and collaboration and engagement with their customers and especially with their employees and, and treat people, you know, according to the golden rule. And, and uh, our bottom line is we try to inject or re-inject 
the human side of 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 this equation back into business because during the industrial age we kind of lost that a little bit. Yeah, and this has been a reoccurring theme on the show. It feels like the last, uh, I don't know, two months we've been talking about this industrial revolution kind of impact on culture, on how we expect people to perform. And I think what you're kind of getting, the angle you're coming in at is, you know, we probably just communicate to people by telling them this is how it's going to be, kind of yell, yell something from the top, and everyone else at the bottom needs to hurry up and figure it out as that assembly line keeps moving. Um, but that's not really how 99.99% of our workforce is, you know, they're not doing work on an assembly line. That's not how they interact with the company. And, and yet managers are continuing to treat them as if they do and are frustrated as to why they're not getting the, the results and the performance that they want. Is that kind of where you're coming from? Well, yes, absolutely. And, I, and I, you hit the nail on the head. We, our leadership styles... That, you know that we're still actually teaching in business schools today is based on the manufacturing environment, and and uh, as you said, who does that anymore? Right. And, and it's 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 a difficult lesson to learn, especially for uh, for for us old white guys, and and I and I mean I mean that literally. Uh, the the boomers, um, especially men, you know, we we like this command and control authoritarian leadership style. Uh, it's it's. It's what our egos are based upon, and and now to actually be asked to listen and collaborate and get the right people in the right room at the right time instead of us having all the answers, it's it's a, it's a difficult chore. Yeah, and and you know, we like it, and then but you know it never really seems to work unless like you're like coaching a high school sports team where you can turn and make them run or do 100 push-ups if they don't listen to you. It really doesn't work, you know, in in a real setting. It doesn't work in a volunteer setting. It doesn't work in a in a workforce setting, because people have that ability to opt out, to, to go do something else, to tell you no. I mean, it just, it's so easy for them to disengage or just flat out leave, um, uh, you, you know, that it, and yet people continue to want to do it over and over and over again. I, mean, I, I, I get way more examples of that, that people continue to do that way than for them to make adjustments and, and have a more collaborative approach. Well, you hit the nail on the head again. I, our millennial crews, you know, they're the first generation to give themselves permission to actually enjoy work and to grow from the experience and and to and to, to learn every day. And and they're 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 not they're not very cooperative with this authoritarian style. They want to be part of the solution. And and now um, the rest of us. I'm 55 years old. I look at that and go, "Dang, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> what, what have What have I been doing all this time?" And and I'm tired of doing those push-ups. I'm I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to I'm watching what's going on around me. I'm not stupid, and I'm going to figure out this is a better way to work. So, as you're being asked to come in and help companies really, you know, deal with this challenge and put some, you know, new and 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 uh, you know, maybe thoughtful things in place. Where do you find the kind of the most resistance from companies um, to really, you know, making these changes and when you're trying to help them recreate their business model? Where do those really f- sit at? Well, that's that's a great question. I, I think it really comes down to, I mean, it would be easy to say the command and control issue. It would be easy to say, you know, a generational differences. But what it really boils down to is that's the way we've always done it syndrome. Right. It's it's hard, especially for legacy companies. Take a Fortune 100 company. You know, they've had the same number of layers of management, the same processes, the same hierarchy, same silos, frankly, for decades. 
and and we come in and ask them to change in, in just a few years, it's, it's, it's very difficult. And, and uh, the second part of that is there's almost always a dip. You know, before we learn how to work again, there's a loss of productivity. There's 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 a loss of retention. I mean, even look what's happening to Zappos. Eighteen percent of their crew voluntarily left right. when when their CEO tried to make a major change. And so you see this dip, but then once you start coming out of that dip, you start to go, "Wow, this is working. I get this now." But it takes a it's it's not an easy road to get there. Yeah, and a lot of times that's the. Right, it's the unknown that scares people, and then as you, you know, have they have this uneasiness, they don't know what to expect, they don't know what's going to happen. Then they start to feel unsafe, and then you get into all the Maslow's laws, and we get into all those kind of basic things. But um, you know, it really, I guess it can it can really confound a company if they don't have every answer. But in a transition, you, you can't have every answer, right? I mean, you, that, that's part of the process. You've got to figure out some things as you go along. You may have some, some guiding principles. You may have some new ways you want to do things, but you're not going to have the answer for everything. So is that part of the challenge is to, to get that education and get people talking and working together to, to, to deal with those things on a, on a you know? Well, it is. Yeah. It is. Uh, I'll give you an example. We, we recently worked with a company that had a major problem on in, a, in an assembly environment they had a major issue and and they wanted us to help facilitate that problem and, and and find a solution and we walked in the room and there were 13 vps and all in suits all looked great all ready to go to work and we looked at them and said where's where's the, where's the people from the assembly for and they said oh we're you know they're working so well, aren't they more comfortable with the problem than any of you Right, and they said, "Well, yeah, but we're executives. We're, I mean, we're supposed to find the solutions." I said, "I tell you what, let's 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 take a break. Let's go get some people from the floor. Let's get the right people in the right room at the right time, and let's find a solution. Because you're just going to have to go and ask them what the problem is, and then you're going to suggest a solution. They're going to look at you like you're crazy because you've never spent ten minutes on the floor, and we're going to be in this big roundabout. It's going to take us six months to fix the problem." Well, we changed the people in the room. We started talking about the real problem without the egos and without the suits, and we had the problem fixed in about three days. So, But it's hard for people to make that transition. It's hard to lose control. It's hard to lose authority. And and, and it's hard, frankly, to say, Mr. Mr. Assembly person, you've got the answers. I just haven't asked you the right questions, and I'm going to start doing that. That's a big transition to make. Yeah, and, and when you give people that opportunity to – we talk. I, one of the things that I often talk about is – uh, some of the greatest companies that I've been able to observe, um, they know how to deal with mistakes. They have a process in place. They have an open dialogue. They, you know, even go to the point of celebrating mistakes um, so that everyone knows what happened, how it happened, why it happened, what we should do instead next time, instead of hiding behind that. And that, that kind of gets into that same psychology you're talking about. When people aren't talking to those people on the floor, they're, they're doing the work. You know, no one is probably actively telling them this machine keeps breaking because somebody keeps ordering the wrong part or because we don't get it serviced often enough or because you're asking us to run it too many hours in the day and there's not time for maintenance. And there's all these things that nobody wants to hear from uh, that can solve a problem. And that really can c- compounds itself in so many different ways across the company. It starts off as a small problem and ends up becoming a giant problem. It, it, do, you, do you see those kinds of things kind of becoming institutional in the co- clients that you're having to help? 
Well, absolutely, and I'll go back to that same example. The, the people on the floor knew the vendor responsible for this one machine had been in default of their contract for three years. Three years. Mm-hmm. And, and it had been reported up to through supervisors and management, and the answer was always the same. That's the company we use. There's nothing we can do. Just deal with it. Band-Aids, more Band-Aids. And, and once, once the problem, the root cause was actually established and you had the decision makers and the frontline people in the, in the room, everybody realized, well, that's ridiculous. They've been in default for three years. Let's fix this now. And boom, done. But again, that's a, that's a big transition. And, and, and frankly, it's a lot to ask. Right, uh, uh, and that's it's it's a lot to ask, I guess, any company and try to do that. Well, I know uh, you know I've got a question here. I'm going to assume that you got some kind of a uh, an approach here that you can give us some idea around. But you know, looking at things like you know targeted recruitment and targeted management, you know, they they play an overall into the overall ability for an organization to really find success. Um, once that transition is successful, is that is that kind of what you guys see? The transition happens, and then you start to really go after different types of people um, as the company starts to change and the solutions and the approach starts to change. Well, that that's it exactly. We we uh, my my business partner uh, Sean Murphy is is um, a big proponent of creating pockets of excellence. And what that means, Chris, is we don't have to change everything all at once. We can take a subgroup or a small, just a small team, and we can say, let's be solution-focused. Let's not do it the way we've always done it. Let's do it right. And, you know, you get six or eight people, and they start making a big difference, and the metrics start to change, and productivity changes, and creativity goes way up, and employees feel more and more engaged, and you see that energy across the room, and people start to ask, what, what are you guys doing? Or they see this great report coming out where, say, Sustainability went from 76 to, to 88% in, in one quarter. Somebody's going to look up and go, wow, how did you do that? Right? And then once this pocket of excellence starts to propagate, now everybody wants a piece of it. Right? Everybody sees that it's, that it's being done a different way and maybe a better way. And, and now it propagates. And that's, that's our approach. So let's not, you know, there's nothing worse than that, that, that person shouting from up high in the ivory tower saying, we're going to change. Um, that does not work, right? There needs to be real-world examples and emulatable role models, and that's that's our approach. So, you know, and one of the things you're passionate about, and you're starting to kind of touch on it here with with your last response, is you know the, the company culture and leadership. So, specifically, how often do companies, you know, leaders really recognize the need to change the culture? Um, but maybe are unwilling to really change their leadership style. Can, can, can companies still find success even in the midst of that kind of identity struggle? Well, they can. I, I tell you, Chris, it usually starts with some kind of a transition, maybe a new CEO or a CMO, CIO, and they look around and they go, wow, this is really not working. And and I don't really know what the problem is, but I know I need to figure it out quick. And, uh, you know, the very... Uh, Ted Cohen and I wrote a book a year ago called The World Gone Social, How Companies Must Adapt to Survive. And, and the very first line in that book is change is typically the result of insurmountable market pressure. And and people don't like to change. People don't do it willingly. Um, it's But here's the reality. It's not that bad unless you're on the outside looking in. You know, change can be rejuvenating. Change can be refreshing. Change can, change can completely restart a culture. And, and so that's 
that's the theory is let's get people personally involved in the mission and what we're trying to accomplish and and then and then everybody kind of sees this the need for change in a much different light and that's that's the key is let's get everybody involved and 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 everybody give everybody a voice and and let them feel engaged in this as if they're part of the solution so is this kind of uh, concept of, of that social leadership then you know how how important is that into really discovering new business models and that you kind of mentioned that you know the market kind of forcing change you know how, how big of an impact is that in the overall equation well it's 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 huge or as our presidential candidate would say huge it's it's really it's it, it really comes down to everybody feeling as though they're contributing and and in the industrial age of course we just we just did what we were told. We were told not to make waves, don't rock the boats, all that stuff, right? Don't don't bring up a problem. That's a that don't stand out. And and so what social leadership says is forget all that. Let's let's be creative. Let's let's innovate. Let's let's take an existing process and make it better. And and that goes from 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 whatever's left of our manufacturing environment all the way to HR. You know, we, we worked with one client, and they said, you know what we started doing finally? We started sitting down and saying, you know what, we don't, we're not going to do what, you know, we're not going to look at resumes anymore. We're not going to write job descriptions anymore. We're going to go find really, really good people and find spots for them. We're going to go find people that really treat customers well. They have a history of treating customers well. Their parents raised them right. They're doing amazing work somewhere else. Let's bring them here see if they're aligned with our mission and, and let's do good work. And they completely abandoned their old way of recruiting. They started hiring for the culture they wanted the company to have three years from now. And eventually all the old school people, they kind of they kind of fell by the wayside, went somewhere else. And we say often at Twitch and Shift, attrition is our best friend. And three years three years later they had this amazing company culture. It didn't take decades, but they had to start hiring the right people right now. Right, right. And that's it's so key and you know, we always want to have the right people sitting at the right seats, you know, at the right time. But, you know, there's that interesting kind of correlation between is the company really ready for the right people? I mean, you can get the the best A players, the most perfect person ever. But if your company's not ready to to operate with them, you know, they're, they're going to go 100 miles an hour and you're stuck in, you know, stuck going 40 miles an hour because your company doesn't doesn't operate correctly, can't move quickly, doesn't make decisions properly. You didn't give all the A players you want in the world, but you're going to end up just paying to, paying to rent them for a little while before they go on to the next person. Um, you know, so there's a lot to be said about making sure your company is is ready. I, I guess we could use a dating uh, terminology, right? I mean, if you want to. You, you you better have your own stuff figured out. You better be okay with yourself, and you, you might want to stop eating the jelly donut and go to the gym a few times if you know you want to get out there in the world. If you're going to start dating, it's kind of the same thing for companies, right? I mean, you need to have, kind of have your stuff together. I, I'm still going to use the jelly donut analogy. For now. It's, it's, <laughs> it's copyrighted. I'm sorry. It's copyrighted. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll pay you a nickel. All right, um, each time. You know, here's what happens, Chris is. And this is happening, by the way, to many companies right now, especially some of our, our older companies. We end up having two different cultures. We end up having, like, the old General Mills and the new General Mills. And those, those two factions, all working under the same roof, become 
it becomes acrimonious. And, and we have the protectionists that hold on to what they know and what, they, what they're comfortable with. And then we have the new blood that's coming and said, "No, we got to do this differently. We're going to we're going to go from waterfall to agile, and we're going to and we're, we're going to lose the ACS and start doing human-based recruiting." And you, you, it's it's not pretty for a while. And that's part of that dip we talked about earlier. Is is it feels odd? It feels weird. There sometimes uh, we see there's almost a civil war going on within within the same organization. It's it's tough, but you have to. You have to feel the pain before before you start, you know, before you start moving forward. And and um, yeah, it um, that jelly donut sounds pretty good some days, but you know better now. And and you know, to, to in the civil war, you gotta you gotta start working a little harder. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm glad I'm glad we could give you a, a good analogy there. That's good. So, well, I know you uh, you're also the CEO and founder of another company. If I'm saying this right, U Turn, which is T E R N, not not U-turn, like making a U-turn, but U Y O U T E R N. Maybe can you share a little bit about this company and the success uh, success that you found in equipping uh, future business leaders to become competitive in the job market? Well, absolutely. That uh, U-turn was our was our first community, our first online community. Although, full disclosure, nowhere in the business plan did we did we um, do we ever use the words online or community. It just happened to be like the right place at the right time, but. But we, um, I, my background is in online recruiting, and and we have done some amazing things. And the technology was completely disruptive, and we completely eliminated the need for um, Sunday newspapers and fax machines, and 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 it was so much fun. But eventually, we realized we were taking the human out of human resources. All anybody needed was a high school diploma or a college degree, and they could hit that apply now button two hundred times and on Monster.com, and something good would happen. And and we. We lost our advantage. We stopped building relationships. We stopped looking for mentors. We we stopped networking because all we had to do was click that that apply now button, and and you know it, uh, job offers came flying in. Well, that worked really well when unemployment was at three point two percent, but then the recession hits, and there's a lot of people out of work, and they have no idea how to get get a job. They have no idea how to network and find mentors and and, and 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 secure internships so they get practical experience. And so that's what U Turn does. U Turn was born to to help college students and recent graduates and young professionals find their way and, and develop their value proposition and, and learn what they stand for and, and, and how to how to apply that purpose to their work. And and so it's been a, a very successful, very rewarding experience for us. And and it's all it's all based on peer to peer mentoring, which is which is really fun, actually. It's fun putting people together that that, that share interests and, and share passions. Yeah, uh, and it, it sounds like a great uh, thing you're doing. Um, you know, if people are interested in learning more about your company, uh, what's the best way for them to, to reach out? Well, I, uh, you can reach me anytime at um, mark at switchandshift.com. That's my email address. We actually still answer our own email. Um, I'm, uh, I'm also on Twitter um, at Mark S. Babbitt. Uh, two T's on the end, and um, reach out anytime. We we love to engage. We love to have these conversations. Well, fantastic! I really appreciate you being on the show, and I know we didn't get to everything, so hopefully, we may have you come back at some point. Uh, maybe we can have you and your partner on at the same time. It'd be fun, and uh, we can uh, continue the conversation. Anytime, Chris. All right, thank you so much. Up next, we'll have uh, Jeff uh, Dubitsky, who will join me after this quick commercial break. <laughs> 
Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. As a reminder, if you have a question for my next guest, you can send them via uh, Twitter. Just put in that question, add the hashtag Talent Talk, all one word, at the end, and uh, Mike will try to get them over to me. Uh, you can also visit TalentTalkRadio.com if you want to hear past shows, as well as the podcasts on iTunes and iHeartRadio. So whatever device you have, iHeartRadio app is really easy to, to find. Uh, you can go to the browser and type that in, um, or if you have an Apple device, just go to the podcast app, type in Talent Talk, all one word, and uh, find us there, and you can listen to past shows. And in a couple of weeks, you'll be able to find this show where we uh, just talked to Mark, but now we're going to be talking to uh, Jeff uh, Dubisky, uh, Global Talent Executive at Wilson HCG. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, please tell us about yourself uh, and uh, what your current role is there with uh, Wilson HCG. Sure, sure. Well, I've been fortunate to actually blend my love of, quite honestly, all types of business and my belief that HR is a profit accelerator for companies now for about 22 years. Actually, I started as a recruiter back in 1994 and a vendor management partner for uh, the contingent worker space and, and never really looked back. As far as the role that I have and the team that I have at Wilson HCG, I'm Executive Vice President over our global HR transformation and consulting practice. In that regard, our team's really focused on, I think, a couple key differentiators for our organization and our clients. You know, first and foremost, really looking at all areas that influence talent attraction, uh, be it employment branding, employee value proposition, but specifically looking into attrition trends, uh, career paths, and more importantly, whether or not business plan growth is aligned with the HR strategy or vice versa. Uh, secondarily, really, the I guess ensuring the quality of hire around the fit of the organization, really taking a look at, at correct success profiles, you know, going beyond the job description itself, really taking a look at uh, onboarding and training to to reduce the quick quit mentality that's there today, and uh, really making those hires successful in their first few months. But uh, I think the key differential really is is in our transformation practice. It's really taking a look at very broad implications around the HR operating model, and uh, really pushing the business partner model 
to the forefront of an organization, moving a lot of that transactional processing uh, into the areas that it needs to be with, let's say, manager and employee self-service technology and other forms and, and ways in which uh, the business partners can be aligned with their business leaders to grow the company and then retain good talent. So with having, you know, uh, your toe or maybe a bit more of, a, of the foot there in that, that part of the world for what your clients are doing, you know, wondering what you're, you're kind of seeing as the outlook for companies or looking to hire top talent and really strengthen their employee foundation. Are you, you, know, you seeing it being extremely, you know, more difficult for them? Is it, is it still something that uh, if they do a good job, at, they can find the right people? And what, what are you kind of seeing right now? Sure. I, I think that, you know, there's that sort of continuous thought around the war for talent. I don't think it ever really goes away. Uh, organizations should always be uh, battling for the best talent that out, that's out there. I think that, that we need to go about things a little differently, and, and a lot of organizations are really looking at this well around the way in which they're uh, attracting uh, their candidates first before acquiring. And it's a back-to-basics approach. You know, it's really taking a look at uh, organizations that fundamentally are looking to take a look at skills and engagement. Uh, we focus so heavily on this thought that there's a talent shortage. And quite honestly, I think we're, we're really starting to migrate the discussion to the gap in skills. You know, technology, competition, service platforms, uh, product lines, they're all changing at such a dramatic pace that we, we have an inability in the marketplace to supply individuals that actually have the direct skills needed, but but there's such a tremendous amount of core talent that's out there. So the organizations, quite honestly, that I think will have a competitive advantage in the talent space today and outpace their competition in the future are those that are going to look at very broad and diversified uh, talent pools that are going to look at you know, significantly different recruitment strategies, engaging, engaging talent networks, and, and quite honestly, once you get them through the door, the continuous ability for learning and development of those individuals that allow for not only retention but stability of what you're offering in the marketplace. So, so I really think we need to shift the discussion, and many of them are. The other piece, quite honestly, is, is when organizations now are broadening the, the definition of competition. You know, it's not just who I compete against to offer software as a service, let's say, in the HR space, or that I provide you know, the very best HVAC or what have you. It's taking a look at the, the direct competitiveness around the consumption of that skill set and saying these are really applicable one, two, three degrees separated from us. And if we get them in, we can spend very little time uh, basically growing them to match what we need. So I think really that's key, and that's what we're starting to hear from our clients. I know one of the things that kind of uh, caught my attention when I was looking uh, up at some of the stuff with, on your company and, and you uh, was this process that you have identified called Discover, Design, and Deploy. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that and what that means and how that works? Sure. It, it really allows us to, in three specific segments, articulate to a client how we kind of get them from current state to future state. And, and so fundamentally, we've developed this Discover Design Deployer or 3D process. And really, the, the Discover phase is so critical. You know, our team approaches every engagement with the intent of really not only understanding but, but feeling what it's like to be inside the organization. So, so the Discover process is more than just data collection and analysis. It's actually being on site 
talking and, and working alongside of people that are performing particular functions. It's, it's talking with candidates that were not chosen for a job or talking to people that have since left the organization. So we go beyond sort of the cosmetic and really get into the psyche of the organization. And that really will help in anything that we do truly identify sort of that employer brand and employee value proposition that's there and and fundamentally get us to to really understanding them and, and help them create what we've kind of coined as a destination employer. Uh, the design process then is, is kind of your back to basics. You know, what do we look at in regards to the current process or process re-engineering, uh, the adaptation of the good things they have versus the gaps of what they need. Uh, a lot of companies like to say, what's the best practice around this? Or what's the best practice around that? And, and we caution that, that best practices are best for the organizations that have uh, designed them and installed them for themselves. So we really use those more as benchmarks and guideposts. And then fundamentally look at best fit. And so the design stage really takes a look at, at how we develop ideally what is going to fill the gaps for today, but then also scale and flex for what their needs are in the future. Uh, and then finally, the deploy stage is really, I think, where the rubber meets the road. Uh, so it's beyond, let's say, contract negotiations for a new technology platform or a third-party administrator that they might need, but it's the implementation and the migration and the stabilization of a new HR operating model or a new process within a particular HR tower. And, of course, key to that is change management. Uh, that's obviously the success to each piece that you do, and it's kind of interwoven to the entire process. So that's that's fundamentally our three Ds. Well, and it sounds like a great way to kind of capitalize it or, or encapsulize it uh, for people and uh, to kind of have a good uh, – Cut approach. It's catchy too, with being the three D approach um, as well. Easy to remember. Uh, one of the things I remember seeing, I think I was on your LinkedIn profile, I was kind of talking about the Sumner Graces that you kind of move HR to the front of the business operations and out of the back office. And we've talked about this many times on the show about HR needing to be more strategic and in those strategic conversations, as opposed to being just a tactical you know, moving paper and, and, and filing forms and, and handing right. payroll and things like that. Um, because on a strategic level, HR can be so impactful. But how do you find that companies are able to, to do that effectively? Uh, it's a great question. And, and honestly, I think it's a, it's a continuation of that struggle these days. Companies, small to, to global conglomerates still, uh, trying to find sort of that holy grail of, of the HR business partner and, and where all the transactions are suddenly done uh, somehow and somewhere else. And so, you know, a few companies, I think, have successfully pushed the transactional HR uh, out into an area that's appropriate, be it manager or employee self-service. Uh, you know, for a number of years, I think the causes for some of the delays were, were well-founded to the extent that Maybe the user experience wasn't the best it would be, and hence adoption would be relatively low, and your ROI for investing in a platform and potentially a new operating model might be low. And quite honestly, the ability for, at least for larger organizations, to leverage sort of global contact centers for language capabilities and, and localized compliance. But, you know, things have gone so far advanced now where, these third-party administrators are really great 
at uh, getting ahead of the curve for localized compliance, and the technology platform has actually become, uh, quite honestly, so robust that the experience is not only rock solid, but but the users can actually configure themselves, uh, configure them for themselves. So that's really been sort of number one as a key pivot pointer or catalyst. Uh, I think number two, our clients really do see the ability of, of technologies to be the leverage, right? So really optimizing the transactional processes that are there and, and really shift the HR services out of the reactionary to being more preemptive. So now we have the 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 first stage of business partners truly facing uh, with the business leaders how to handle growth and profit planning and how that impacts, let's say, the current workforce or within planned obsolescence of a product line or a service, how do we upskill or redeploy employees? Uh, how does the indirect competition that I talked a little bit earlier about where our skills are transferable across different industries, you know, how does that influence our ability to retain? Or more importantly, uh, within our succession plan, you know, beyond the top 10, 50, or a couple hundred people, are, are we looking at external marketplace options so that perhaps our ready-to-moves aren't really that ready-to-move and we might need some additional outside influences. It's, it's really finally getting the business partner hand-in-hand hand with their business leader to, to accelerate the organization. You know, and quite honestly, I think that our goal at the end of the day is to, to make HR the first call for all strategy sessions. People will pick up the phone and they'll call finance or they'll call legal or they'll call compliance for something. But I think HR tends to still be viewed as, as by the way, we made some decisions. We need you to go execute on this. And we're trying to change the paradigm where HR is the first call. And, and you know, kind of looping back to what we got originally, um, you know, where with all those kind of things in mind, and I know the approach that you guys are taking with trying to help the HR uh, departments become a profit center, you know, why do you think it's so hard for companies to really push HR into that strategic role to begin with? Is it just this is the way it's always been kind of a thing? Is it that they have the wrong people in HR? I mean, what, what kind of stops people? I mean, I, we've, we've provided companies at different times in the incredible numbers and what they could do and the kinds of, you know, profits and and changes in costs and different things they could do by really elevating what they're doing in those departments. And very often they don't want to. I mean, do you have some insight into this, maybe the psychology of that? Right. I, you know, and I think you're spot on. I, I remember, gosh, it's been more than a decade at least when that cover story of why I hate HR came out. And it was heralded by all the business leaders as, as the, you know, the, the, the marching tune for HR to change their ways and become more valuable. And quite honestly, since then, and, and I deal with HR practitioners all over the world, and I, I speak at a number of events, and I talk to these folks that are in the trenches every day, and, and we have, as a profession, we've gone out and retooled ourselves. We've got HR people that know financial statements and disclaimers and how to calculate ROI and net present value on, on the programs that they're going to do. They've, they've gotten out of the squishiness of not being able to calculate true cost avoidance and, and cost deflation within certain programs. We've even been able to show that, you know, accelerated talent acquisition gets salespeople up and running sooner and, and product, uh, production lines up faster and therefore we're to market faster and therefore we're to our P&Ls faster. I mean, HR has done a phenomenal job at creating the ability to talk and walk the business language. Now I think the gap has really flipped, and I don't mean to just 
pass the buck here, but it was interesting. Uh, the end of last year, Gallup released their State of American Manager report, and, and Gallup's uh, chairman and CEO, Jim Clifton, actually opened up by saying, and this is a quote, most CEOs I know honestly don't care about employees or take an interest in human resources. And, and I think that's the gotcha moment. You know, that's the dirty little secret now is that, that HR really has pulled itself up by its bootstraps, has demonstrated the value, has fought its way to this, this proverbial seat at the table, and yet the voice is not being listened to. And I think it's a travesty, quite honestly, uh, because we do have people that are showing how to get the transactions moved out more efficiently and less costly and with more accuracy, and yet there still seems to be, and I see it time and again, when the business case is delivered, there is some obstacle in the leadership's mind to say, let's go forth and do. And, and so, you know, I'd like to see that start to turn. Uh, little by little, I think it is. But uh, honestly, I thought we'd be much further along than we are today. Yeah, there's there's always this, uh, whether it's the dollars, whether it's a disbelief, I don't know what it is. It's There's there's something there for, for people and... Um, you know, we, we, we have seen some change um, when they kind of decimated HR departments when the recession hit. Uh, I think it was per- they realized, I think some, there were some CEOs out there that realized the importance that HR was playing for them as they began to have other problems. Um, and maybe they should not have decimated those departments to the point that they did. Sorry, I was going to say, and, and if you think, and if you look at the fact that oftentimes when they're cutting HR, it's probably the worst times. The, the the tooling that is inside your HR department with not just growth and acquisition, but the appropriate redeployment or, or reduction in forces needs to be taken into account. The ability of of the marketplace, uh, we you know the market G two or the competitive intelligence that that recruiters get every day about where people are moving inside of other organizations, what platforms are obsolescing, what new skills are being transformed. You know, those are tr- tremendous skills that could help during a downturn with your marketing and sales department. Uh, so I, I think you're right to just across the board chop HR because we're in a downturn or we're laying people off is, is very, very short-sighted. Yeah, absolutely. And it always seems to you know, affect them in ways that they think it's not going to happen to me. I mean, that's just... I'm not sure how business leaders get get caught in that sometimes, but you know they have this "it's not going to happen to me" belief system, and you know maybe maybe five percent it doesn't happen to, but everyone else it seems to happen to whatever those those things are they're hiding from. Uh, you know, I know you describe yourself as a passionate liberator of companies' talent management processes. So, can you talk about what that means and what you know happens to a company that puts? you know, these things in place, you know, really needing that liberation in their talent management process? Sure. Uh, and it's really, it's more than a tagline. It's, it's kind of my personal and professional soapbox, if you will. Uh, but, but too often, a number of things happen uh, within the, the operating model itself, you know, whether it's the employee life cycle, uh, engagement in the workforce, we find this sort of constant bureaucracy-laden patchwork of, of rules and checklists. And a lot of that has very little to do with ultimately how we get our talent to align the processes and, and the business strategy within the HR operating model. So, you know, when I think about a couple things, uh, uh, managers traditionally, and, and again, sorry to pass the buck, but we've got hiring managers and organizations that continue to delineate 
job descriptions, and, and it's really a mercenary role of, well, you're doing that here. I'd like you to come over and do it for us. You know, the movement has to have something truly compelling because if it's not just for career growth, you know, I, I think that that's a, a bit mercenary for dollars or potentially highlighting a significant risk in inability to retain talent. Uh, there's been a lot of swirling around uh, whether or not performance reviews are dead. <laughs> and we go back and forth around that. You know what, honestly, if it's just a checkpoint to justify an increase, well, then that's antiquated, that's old school, and why are we doing that? Because somewhere someone has a rule that says we must. And so we really try to challenge what it is that people have as a talent management process and talk more about what does it mean to grow your talent, to retain that which you need to, to acquire that which will be needed in the future. And so we're really trying to just peel those pieces away and create something that's a bit more on demand so that we're taking a look at, for example, strong growth and profit planning with your finance or CFO and your VP of sales and your regional sales leader cascades into a workforce plan that allows you to think about where you may or may not have blind spots in your ability to hire in, in new markets, new offices, new product lines. Um, you know, fundamentally, how do we uh, allow ourselves to get out of the mentality that, that recruiting is just like turning on a faucet, but developing truly strong talent networks, you know, vibrant that we're constantly involved with so that we do have sort of a, an on-demand capacity to engage folks. And then more importantly, if we release some of those chains that we're tied to, uh, now we have HR business partners that are suddenly developing our leaders. They're coaching managers through better hires or through performance issues. We become a strategic partner in, in M&A or even divestitures. And then really leveraging, as I mentioned, some of that marketplace knowledge that we're in the midst of every day and providing that as true and valuable insight to an organization. So, yeah, I guess to sum it up, and that was probably a longer-winded answer than you wanted, but you know, get out of the checklist and rule-based mentality. Decide on truly what we need to manage our talent to grow and retain it, and then put in as little as possible to ensure that we, we hold ourselves accountable to that. So you seem like a smart guy. I'm hoping you're going to have a great answer for you here for us here. So no pressure. Uh, okay. Uh, what are you reading right now? And can you tell us about that book? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, so right now I'm actually in the middle of, of Neil Gabler's uh, Walt Disney: The Triumph of American Imagination. It's uh, it's a great read. I'm about halfway through. Yeah, I, th- I think. Disney's an incredible organization, and quite honestly, Disney Cruise Lines I use often as a base case example of, of just a wonderful talent magnet and, and talent development organization, and uh, maybe some other show I could just tell you all about Disney Cruise Lines. But, um, you know, quite honestly, the book is great. It, it, it's, it's great to see the early beginnings of Disney. Uh, Walt had just a, a fanatical passion for not only completely upending an industry, but truly, in the 30s, a great cultivator of, of talent. And he understood, quite honestly, how investing early, not only in people, but the competitive differentiator I think organizations need today, which is training, continuously adapting and continuously training your folks is really a way to improve. And, uh, you know, what a great success story considering the number of failures he had up until the time of, of launching truly the Walt Disney Company. So it's a, it's a great read. 
So how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more about uh, Wilson uh, HCG? Uh, so there's a couple ways, obviously, as you alluded to, my LinkedIn profile is fully up to date, very easy to get a hold of me there. Uh, Twitter, I'm at, at TalentScout1. And uh, if you visit WilsonHCG.com, not only could you get to myself, but all of our team members, there are just tremendous resources out there uh, from blogs and tools, white papers, uh, benchmark reports. Uh, our team company-wide just has a ton of passion and knowledge, and, and we love to share. So appreciate the opportunity to share with you. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, and I'd love to have you come back. We can talk about that uh, Disney Cruise Line stuff, and I'm sure there's a whole lot more we didn't even get to today that uh, would be fascinating to talk about. So we'll definitely have you uh, come back uh, sometime in the future. Thanks, Chris. I look forward to it. All right. Uh, thank you again to both my guests. Hopefully uh, all of you uh, who are listening have gained something that you might be able to take back with your own ca- career uh, and implement right away. Next week I'll be joined by uh, Patrick Rooney, founder and chief customer uh, officer for uh, Q Social. I think that's how you say it, but we'll find out uh, next week. And also Mary Claire Burick, uh, president at Roslyn uh, Business Improvement District. Tune in live here to hear the next great guest on uh, Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. But until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Town Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2.